Welcome to Big Tech. I'm David Scott, the editor-in-chief of The Logic, a publication focused on the innovation economy. And I'm Taylor Owen, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a professor of public policy at McGill University. While David focuses on the business of tech, I look at the way technology is impacting society. And this is a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it. The CEO of the New York Times says that Facebook's fake news algorithm will damage democracy. So does spending too much time on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat actually increase loneliness and depression? That's the new finding of a brand new study by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. And we've never had a media device that literally a billion people are kind of being programmed in the same way, where so much influence is in the hands of a few technology designers. While we were playing on our phones and apps, our democratic institutions, our form of civil conversation, seem to have been upended by frat boy billionaires from California. It's become common wisdom that modern technology isn't always good for us. Instagram and Snapchat are making us lonelier, Facebook is destabilizing our democracies, and smartphones are changing the way we think. These arguments aren't new, and of course they're debatable. But few people make them as compellingly and as enthusiastically as Douglas Rushkoff. Rushkoff is a prominent media theorist and the author of books like Present Shock and Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. His most recent book is called Team Human, which is also the name of his podcast. Rushkoff argues that a lot of our technology is anti-human. It isolates us when it could be connecting us, and it generates animosity where it could be encouraging empathy. But although he is an impassioned and outspoken critic of tech, he doesn't blame the technology itself for our societal woes. Rather, the way we use it. A quick note to our listeners. Uh, this interview was recorded in February, prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we wanted to bring it to you anyway, though, because we thought it was a fascinating conversation and might offer a bit of relief from the COVID news cycle we're all absorbed in. We hope you enjoy it. Douglas Rushkoff, welcome to Big Tech. Hi, good to be with you. So you've said that tech desocializes us and alienates us from our souls, that it's anti-human. These are big words. What do you mean? Well, I don't think that tech does this unless we tell tech to do that. So, I mean, tech is really good at doing lots of different things, but we have programmed our technology to extend a really obsolete industrial age program which is remove human beings from the equation wherever you can, you know, use unqualified labor, make processes repeatable, um, convince consumers that they need stuff so they buy things that they don't really need, monitor consumer behavior, use behavioral finance and other uh, techniques to addict people to certain cycles. Um, so that's stuff we've been doing a long time. And where 
those of us who were exposed to computer technology and networking in the in the 80s and early 90s thought, oh, wow, we finally have a way to break free of this and to start using media and technology to connect with other people rather than just be manipulated by companies. Um, we pivoted away from those possibilities in the late 90s, and now we're living in a world where technology is being used primarily to monitor and control human behavior and to keep us addicted to the sorts of behaviors that, um, well, that threatened (laughs) the extinction of our species. Um, And we tend to do so by keeping people from connecting with one another. You know, the more rapport and connection you have with other people, um, the less vulnerable you are to some of these really primitive means of uh, throwing you into fear and panic and getting you to behave Um, impulsively or reactively. So it's come to the point where, you know, technologies, even like Facebook, which may have at one point been intended to help college guys find girls to, you know, date, um, which at least was human connective, is now um, really just a tool of, uh, of market research and social controllers. So, so let's take the Facebook example. We talked, we've talked a lot on the show about, all the ills and challenges with Facebook. Um, but if, can you walk us through sort of the behavioral manipulation piece of this? So you open Facebook, um, you're exposed to a feed of content, and how is the intent to manipulate our behavior surfaced? Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's sir. Two questions into our interview, the line goes down. He's really gone, eh? That yeah. never happens. After a couple of minutes of troubleshooting, we reconnect. Dude, that was you, not me. (laughs) (laughs) Can you hear me now? (laughs) Yeah, that was you guys, though. And there we were, three self-professed technology experts trying to figure out which one of us was responsible for the crappy internet connection. That's weird. I mean, I could check my uh, internet speed. Let me see. I get a, a little bleep when it goes away from you. Is that what you get? Uh, we get a bleep when you come back. Oh, I get a bleep when you go away. (laughs) (laughs) This is great. With the connection up and running, we dive back in. So how exactly is Facebook controlling us? Basically, you're, you're asking, how do we know or what are the ways that Facebook is sort of trying to dehumanize us? Yeah. And I mean, principally, I mean, the newsfeed on your Facebook page is arranged, is is composed by an algorithm that was ported from the slot machines of Las Vegas in order to induce addictive behavior. You know, the value system on what constitutes a successful post has really nothing to do with the post itself, but how much uh, traction, how many stories it generated, how many people clicked on it. So, Uh, we end up adopting the metrics of a a market researcher or advertiser as our values. And to do that in a professional space, maybe to do that on LinkedIn is one thing, because that's a place where you're just trying to make money or something. But to expect your social realm, which is what Facebook supposedly is, your social medium, to somehow correspond to the values of the market reduces 
human connection and behavior to, you know, that which can be exploited for financial gain. And that's, that's a real problem. How is this different to any other time in human history, or is it different? I mean, technology has advanced. You know, I, I, the story that I often recall is the one of the Lumiere brothers sitting, creating a motion picture for the first time, and people sitting in a cinema in 1897 and seeing a train come towards them and ducking under the seats. Um, is this any different to prior technological revolutions? Well, when the train came at them, in their seats, were they told that if you vote for Teddy Roosevelt, this train will not hurt you? Hmm. You know, were people measuring the the impulses that could push them back into their seats so we know how to control a population? I mean, yeah. were... <laughs> so it's a feedback loop. The, 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 it's the measuring of the reaction to the technology that's, that's different? Well, it's two things. One, it's the intent. I believe the people who are making the trains were doing it as a form of entertainment where the people paid like a nickel or a dime to go in and they had this experience and that was what they were doing. On Facebook, people are not paying with their money. They're paying with things they don't even know they're delivering to a company that's not really, its primary intent is not to entertain you um, with no strings attached, but rather to addict you to a platform in order to predict and manipulate your behavior in the long term. So, I mean, I think they're really different things. You know, one is an extension of the arts and the other is an extension of programmatic advertising. Before we leave on the on the different moments in media history, I mean, you've spent a lot of your career looking at those different moments. And it it feels to me, like, it it, it drives me crazy when we hear the constant argument that well, each new revolution in communications technology had negative consequences and it took us decades to figure it out and then ultimately we did. Um, in part because it seems to me there's something fundamentally different about the internet. Um, do you think that's true? Do you, are we, is this a different moment? Um, it may be. I mean, they're all different moments. You know, the the shift from an oral culture to scribal culture. That was a really big one. You know, once we could write things down, we got history and we got a future. That's when instead of living in a circular kind of timeless culture, we moved into the into a society of progress. And each year we're going to be better than the last. And in a lot of ways, that was very positive, right? To make the world a better place. In a lot of ways, it was really negative because it led to colonialism. It led to interest and uh, and and corporatization. So so it's it's happened before, you know, in broadcast media as well. Broadcast media became a tool for manipulating people. That's that's what television is. Television was really, maybe it wasn't invented to do this, but it certainly proliferated for its ability to create consumer demand for products that people didn't need. That the, the whole economic model of America was based on how do we get people to buy stuff they don't need in order to get jobs for people in factories to make the stuff that's that's surplus. You know, so we created a consumer society. And the internet 
stood a chance of breaking us from that sort of cycle of consumer desire. The problem with the internet when it first came around was in 1994, they did a study and they found out that the average internet connected home was watching nine hours less television a week. So they were watching nine hours fewer commercials. There were no ads online. The the internet was an ad-free zone back then. So they were watching nine hours less commercial television. This could crash the whole economy. So that's why they put put advertising online and Netscape went public and we got the dot-com boom was so that the internet could be, rather than this new weird other thing, it could be an extension of television. But even more powerfully because there's more perceived choice. Right. But even more powerfully because it feeds back and and works in real time and all that. So in some sense, I feel like we haven't genuinely moved into the digital media environment. We're using digital media to do television. You know, Trump is not the first digital candidate. He's kind of the last TV candidate because the tweets and things he says only matter if CNN and MSNBC broadcast them. We, we're talking a lot about communication, uh, and I'm curious if, if more broadly you see a delineation between communication technology and innovation versus overall industrial or societal innovation. And uh, Is there a distinction in your mind or in your view among communication technology and how it impacts us versus more, more broad technology? Well, it's interesting. I wonder how much of the, of the internet we think of as communication technology. I mean, as opposed to some sort of, some version of one-way broadcast technology. You know, communication always, as a word to me, mean has communal in it. It has, you know, some sense of parity. So I think of the telephone as a communications device. And I think of the early internet as a communications device. But I think of the web as kind of this other thing, this flat catalog. But... Uh, I guess you mean like sort of almost like media, uh, media, computers and technology versus like other stuff like machines and nano and robots and all that? Yeah, we struggle with this all the time in like the scope of digital technology studies, right? Like is it is it just communications and media or does it include AI and obviously clearly includes things like algorithms in it? But where does that extend? How far can you extend that? Digital media is really anything that we we relate to or manipulate through a symbol system rather than directly digital is everywhere you can have a digital thermometer you have a you know d- digital television digital uh, it doesn't just have to be um what we think of as communications media to be digital and the the biases of digital end up impacting everything you know what i'm hoping is that some of the biases of digital are able to overcome the sort of the biases of industrial corporate extractive capitalism you know that that i keep i i keep oddly enough i feel like i'm defending digital against something else, that it's never been digital that I've been upset with. People think, oh, you used to like digital, and now you hate digital. And it's like, no, digital's been the same. I, I used to love the way that we applied digital, and now I hate the way we're applying digital. You know, so there's a really big difference. It's like, I like hammers, as long as people aren't hitting each other in the face with them. I mean, in some ways, it's the way that the digital's been appropriated by power, right? It's, cer- yeah. it's certain... It's not just humans, it's a certain manifestation of human control and power that has reshaped the digital. Yeah, and it happens. 
it happens to every great culture. I mean, you're doing this great thing. I mean, think about the early 90s. I mean, you were more likely to find a computer programmer going to raves at night, you know, yeah. than, than looking at their, their Charles Schwab stock indexes and things. I mean, those of us who were involved in computers, our parents were worried for us. They thought that if you're going into computers, it would be like you're going into Dungeons and Dragons or something, that this is a, a useless hobby. So when big business came along, I mean, it felt, I think, it felt to a lot of hackers like we would maintain control of this thing, that they were coming to us, or that that the only way for this thing to get to the next level was by kind of accepting money from those folks or making some kind of a compromise. Um, and I don't think we realize just how powerful those people are. It's like we missed the 60s and didn't realize how quickly an entire important movement will be co-opted um, the minute it is deemed a threat to the status quo. You know, I, th I think of John Perry Barlow and his declaration of cyberspace with his utopian vision of the internet back in 1996. Do you think Barlow was naive? Naive would be the best word you could use for it. Uh, I think people like me were naive to believe it. Um, Did you, you believed it at the time, right? Yeah. I mean, I was... Uh, kid, you know, or a kid. I mean, I felt like a kid anyways in my 20s, but I, you know, I, I was taking E and going to raves and hear this, you know, wise adult, you know, who lived through the 60s and wrote lyrics for the Grateful Dead and was as cool as cool gets and understood these machines and email and Usenet and was everywhere on the well and friends with Stuart Brand and Howard Rheingold was saying, you know, right after Operation Sun Devil, which is when they arrested all these nice little hacker kids just for poking around AT&T and they were doing the Computer Decency Act, you know, trying to shut down the web because they were scared of child porn or some other, you know, bullshit, uh, propagandistic fear, you know, along came John Perry Barlow and said, hey, government and law enforcement, get off our net. You can't control us. You don't. Right. You, we're going to take care of it ourselves. Yeah. You know, what I didn't realize, because I hadn't read Marx yet at the time, was that, you know, government and, and business balance each other out, kind of like fungus and bacteria in your body. You know, if you get rid of all your probiotics, the candida is going to run amok in your, in your body. You know, so you get rid of government and corporations are going to run amok on there. And really what he had done, and I didn't know from what a libertarian was, what he did was was espoused a kind of California libertarian ideology that, that, that business can take care of itself and will take care of all this. And um, it turned out, no, because corporations are not fans of the free market. Corporations are fans of a monopolies. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And highly, re something regulated in their favor. Yeah. So we didn't end up getting even the free market that Barla might have, might have um, spoken about. But yeah, that was a big, big turning point. I mean, for me, the turning point was the day that Mark Andreessen took Netscape public, mm. right? Netscape was a nonprofit thing. And the day that Netscape went public was the same day that Jerry Garcia, the guitarist for the Grateful Dead, died. 
And I always took that to be symbolic of that's the day that we Jesus Christ. that we <laughs> left behind the sort of 1960s values that were informing that early kind of homebrew computer club, West Coast Bay Area psychedelic rave fantasy role playing hypertext Gaia hypothesis, Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, Esselin, you know, neural network of humans <laughs> internet. And traded it in for this, you know, dot-com, extractive, exponential, Kurzweilian nightmare. So, I don't know how to follow that, but I'll try. <laughs> um, one of the things that these corporations do care about is, for whatever reasons, is productivity. And that productivity has resulted in these technologies, you know, even allowing us to make this podcast, apart from the internet breaking down, relatively easy to do. Uh, what are the positives of this technology? And do you, do you believe that, that there are positives that have come from what I would call the pursuit of productivity that corporations have pursued? I mean, some of the productivity is illusory, right? So, I mean, maybe our fidelity is somehow higher in this rickety little thing that we're trying to use to connect and our users won't know that we've been disconnected four times as we've tried to do this thing on our, our various pieces of technology. <laughs> so so I, I challenge some of the productivity in just in terms of whatever. But but I agree. So thanks to word processing, you know, I can write a novel a heck of a lot easier than I could do it on my Smith Corona. So yes. You know, productivity has gone up, but what we don't have is an economy that knows how to incorporate higher productivity in a way that benefits human beings. You know, look at something as simple as energy. If we actually had a, a usable, renewable energy source, it would screw up the oil companies to the extent that it would crash our whole economy. You know, we have an economy built on non-renewable extraction. So how do you shift from an extractive economy to a renewable one? That's the same kind of question. How could we cope with a world where robots tilled the fields instead of humans? You know, would we let ourselves just lay in lawn chairs and drink iced tea while the robots did all the work? Could we tolerate that? No, because we have an economy based in scarcity. We don't want to give something to someone unless they have a job. And so we create jobs, get people to do stuff that we don't need in order to justify letting them participate in the spoils of productivity. So it's an economic question, not a, a technological question. And one that someone like even, you know, uh, uh, Andy Yang was closer to addressing than, you know, most other people on the, on the public circuit right now. But he, he in some ways represents uh, almost an ideology that we can fix this problem, right? That there's not just necessarily technological solutions, but that there's a, an economic reordering that can happen that would change the directionality of these technologies. Um, there is. Do you think that's the case with – Yeah. So how do you – what do you do? I don't know that it's UBI. I wrote a whole book about this called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which yeah. my original title was Distributism, Operating System for a New Economy. Mm. I mean, yeah, distributism is the idea that, you know, rather than redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact, you pre-distribute the means of production before the fact. Mm. So that, you know, it's basically um, platform cooperatives so that the drivers of Uber own the platform. So even while they're training their robot replacements, um, you know, while they drive, they're going to own those robot replacements once once their jobs are uh, uh, once their jobs are gone. Uh, the co-op movement, though, like that that I 
I hear you, but like, why hasn't for something like Uber that's a fairly replicatable technology? Why hasn't the co-op m- platform movement taken hold in that space? Because Uber has multiple billions of dollars to operate at a loss. So it's just pure subsidization. Yeah. Yeah. They're subsidized with stockholder money in order to to be the last man standing, put everybody out of business and then everybody out of work. So they become the sole provider of goods and the sole employer in the same community. Do you see that changing at all with the WeWork tale and, uh, you know, the uh, VCs that I've been talking to are pretty clear that they're going to be pursuing more profitability than scale in the companies they're investing in. Hopefully, yeah. You know, I went to a a Pepsi shareholders meeting and they were there shouting the number like 4.3, 4.3. It was their growth target for the year. And I got up there to do my keynote and I'm like, dudes, you're one of the 50 biggest companies in the world. If you have to grow at 4.3% in order to be okay, then we are all fucked, right? How big can you get? And why do you have to get bigger? You know, that's a, that's a problem of math, um, not a problem of business. Yeah, I, I wonder, and this is going into a direction that I did not expect us to go down, but would the market not just create different investment vehicles then that would give them that, that growth? I mean, is it, I guess, is it a fundamental human desire for growth? that drives this rather than a particular asset class and what you can get on that return? Only since the invention of interest-based currency from the 11th to the 13th century. After feudalism, there was a couple of centuries when people started to trade with one another. We got markets, you know, marketplaces outside the towns, and people had local currencies that acted like poker chips. They were valueless, except for their ability to... Uh, enhance the velocity of transactions so that the guy with bread could get a chicken and the guy with the chicken could get shoes. You used little chips and that was money. And the problem with that was people were getting wealthy. The former peasants of medievalism were becoming the middle class and the aristocracy who didn't work were getting relatively poorer. So they came up with some laws and the biggest law was nobody's allowed to use those local currencies anymore. Instead, you have to borrow central treasury at interest from the central bank. And you have to pay it back, but you have to pay back more than you borrowed. If you have to pay back more money than you borrowed, where does that more money come from? Growth. So we have growth. Growth became a requirement of business, not because the business needs to grow in order to survive, but because the banker needs growth in order to make money simply by having money. That system no longer works. It's it's stupid, it's exploitational, and it, it runs amok in a, in an extractive economy, you know, put on digital steroids. So no, it's not intrinsic or endemic, whatever, to to business or commerce or innovation. It's an artifact of a banking system that was created by monarchs in the 12th century who have long since left the building. So if this is a structural problem, both embedded in the economic model, but also in the way the technologies are structured themselves and the power that's on top of that, um, how do you see us breaking that cycle? I mean, one of two ways, either reform or collapse. Hmm. You know, I mean, so there's people like me who are talking about reform and alternatives and how it's not so bad and it might be fun and you get to spend more time playing and we have enough stuff and we don't have to have wars and and all that, or 
it breaks, yeah. you know, and it, and when it breaks, there's a lot of casualties, but you know, you, you come up with something else. Uh, I still think some sort of Renaissance is possible. I mean, Renaissance to a certain degree requires human ingenuity and human agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that if you're, if you're talking about the last of lack of human agency, and particularly when we step into conversations around transhumanism and the way the technologies are actually fundamentally changing what that human agency even looks like or is capable of, is that an added risk here that a renaissance might not even be possible because we're losing so much agency? I mean, it may not, but it may be. I mean, that's why, you know, I'm doing my whole, you know, team human shtick to say, you know, to celebrate your humanity, look into the eyes of another person, establish rapport, you know, retrieve the social mechanisms that were painstakingly evolved over, you know, 800,000 years and, you know, use them to to engage with others and and forge solidarity and experience, you know, yourself as, a, a, you know, part of the greater human organism again. Is Team Human going to win? If Team Human gets to go on, then Team Human has won. You know, we never fully win, but do we get to go on another day, another year, another uh, another century? I mean, I'm concerned given how many species we've annihilated over the last century. I'm concerned, you know, for ours as well. And I still don't even really know how much we can do about it at this point, you know, have we tipped? Is the three degrees, four degrees inevitable? And then what other sort of systemic effects happen at that point? Douglas, it speaks to uh, the humanity of our species that we have thinkers uh, and writers like you in our world. And uh, we're grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Oh, that means a lot to me. And it's great that you're doing this, you know, we're at least we're having the conversation, but, you know, it always gets down to what can I do? What can I do? And, you know, I think that the, the first step, and people are never willing to just take this, is the big question is how, you know, what is your comportment as you move through life? In other words, I'm, I'm, I've become, and I don't mean this in a defeatist way, but I've become less concerned with some goal. We all got to come together so we could do this or do that, you know, and rather, what's your, what is your approach? How are you approaching each moment? How are you approaching other people? What level of kindness and, and, and grace and humility are you bringing to each of the moments that you live? And I feel like that's really the best starting place to uh, retrieve our humanity. That was Douglas Rushkoff, author of Team Human. Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic, and produced by Antica Productions. Antica Productions.